Let me invite you, if you have a Bible now, to open it to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And today we will be looking at David and Goliath, which is probably one of the more popular stories that I remember from the Bible growing up. As a matter of fact, I have the scars to prove it. I remember going to vacation Bible school, which was not one of my favorite things to do because they always had it the week after school let out. And I told my mom, it's like you get no vacation. You go from one school to the next. But we decided at vacation Bible school to study David, King David, and we got to the Goliath story, and we actually made slings out of paper and sort of sling, you know, slinged paper wads at each other for a while. And that was pretty fun, but we decided we wanted a little more action than that. So when the Posey boys got home, there were three of us, we made our own slings, either out of leather shoestrings or uh, regular cotton shoestrings. We made some little patch in the middle, and we decided to play fair with one another, so we were only going to sling mud balls at each other, little mud pellets. And so we would wrap them up there, and of course we'd swing it around and around. You let one end go, and it, it comes out pretty good. Except some of our neighbors didn't realize that you were supposed to use mud balls. So instead they used rocks. And I want to tell you, somebody slinging a rock at you with one of those slings could put your eye out, which was what my parents warned me of. of everything I did, I'll put your eye out. So wonder I have any eyeballs. But I remember this neighbor kid swinging one and it popped me on the side of the head and a big old knot came up on my head and then I had whelps all over the rest of my body because eventually those mud balls would turn to dirt clods and they can be hard. So I remember all of this and it might be today why I can't remember certain things because I got hit in the head with a rock that somebody threw. But that's a very interesting story we have to consider today. And there's a lot more to it than what it looks like on the surface. And I hope to uncover some of those things. I'm going to do the preaching a little bit different since it is such a long chapter. Uh, rather than read the whole chapter and then preach on it and read it back to you again, we're just going to read it together, okay? And I will comment as we go. And then, of course, end up with some applications that you can take home with you. And again, I'm doing this because it is such a lengthy uh, chapter. Uh, we're going to run into giants in this passage. Uh, the giant um, Goliath. And Goliath was part of the Anakim, which we'll talk about in a moment. But he was probably nine feet, nine inches tall, the best that I can tell. So he was a rather large guy. And um, he was, uh, of course, a Philistine. And um, he's part of the Anakim, that is the son of Anak. Remember in Numbers when the children of Israel sent out spies into the Promised Land, they came back with a wonderfully grand report, except for the last thing they said, which is there are giants in the land and we can't take them. Well, Goliath is a native of one of those giants. He may also be a product of what happened in Genesis 6 as well, but he's sort of a superhuman big guy. And uh, so the Hebrew word translated giant, guess what, means giant, means big. King Og in the Bible was probably the tallest person mentioned. 
His bed was 14 feet long. Now, either he liked a big bed or he was a long-legged dude. But um, so he was at least 10 to 11 feet tall with a bed that size. But large uh, ancient human skeletons have been found in the ancient Near East uh, where people were as much as anywhere from 8 to 9 feet tall. So we're pretty sure that this beast, Goliath, was 9 feet 9 inches tall. That would be intimidating to most people, to most soldiers. So let's begin in chapter 17. Now the Philistines, the enemies of Israel who worshiped the fish god, Dagon. The Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes-Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line uh, of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came from out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. That would be nine feet, nine inches. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, which is around 125 pounds, okay? And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin or bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, which is about 15 to 16 pounds. And his shield-bearer went before him. So here we have a description of the actual setting of this grand event that takes place in Scripture. Again, Israel's arch enemy threatened God's people. And this time, it's a, a Philistine champion named Goliath. And Goliath offers to the people, we'll see in a moment, sort of an alternative to an all-out war. But you have to picture this in your mind. On one mountainside, there were the Philistine army, Goliath as well. And on the other side, Saul and his army. And there's a big valley with a river running through it, which is where the battle or the, the, the champion contest was eventually to take place. Uh, the reason why the Philistines were probably showing aggression here is they had heard probably rumors of Saul's madness. Because we saw last week that David would play the lyre. He would play the music to calm Saul down because of his extreme uh, reaction to the spirit. The Lord took the Holy Spirit from Saul and sent another spirit that was a harmful spirit to him. And so everybody's set up camp. Everybody's watching one another. And it's a strategically important area. Uh, that was sort of represented Israel from the coast and the sea. And so Saul led the Israelites out to the Philistine challenge with battle lines drawn on opposing hills. Now let's look at Goliath's challenge uh, beginning in verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up 
for battle. Before I go there, there's something else I want to say. You, you realize that what Goliath was wearing into battle was called scale armor. It was like fish scales or the scales of a serpent covered his armor. That's how it was woven together. That's what it was referred to as scales. You remember when Saul became king, he immediately defeated Nahash, whose name means serpent, as Saul started out his drive against the Philistines. Now David is going to meet Goliath wearing scales. We're sort of getting the picture that we're in a new Eden and that a champion is being called. Perhaps he's the seed of the woman who will, the serpent will bruise his heel, yet he will crush the head of the serpent. Maybe we're getting a picture of the one who is coming, the Messiah, the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent by referring to Goliath's garb, his armor, as scale armor. I'm not sure that, that I would die for that, but it's a pretty interesting observation. Also, you'll see in this text, David's brothers turn on him. I mean, they turn on him in, on a dime. As a matter of fact, their presence there with Saul in the army was a bit of a betrayal of David. David also becomes like a, a, a Joseph character. Back when uh, we were pelting one another with these slings and mud balls, of course, my older brother and my younger brother teamed up against me and wore me out. I was such a persecuted person. But so was David. David was already persecuted. He's sort of a, a as Joseph is a type of Jesus, so David is a type of Jesus who will be betrayed and persecuted. Just want to point those out as we go along because of what I want you to understand about the Bible is the narrative keeps repeating itself over and over again because the Bible holds together. It's coherent and the stories are repeated. If, if you've read the stories a lot and you'll read a story somewhere in the Old Testament and you say, I've kind of heard this story before. Yeah. He's communicating to us that the ultimate plan of scriptures found in Genesis 3.16, the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent while getting his heel bruised. And so we see that already in Goliath's appearance and posture. So he challenges, verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? He's sort of hinting, send Saul out. Send him out. Saul was a head and shoulders taller than anybody else. He might have been a decent candidate. Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They were terrified. They were terrified. As Goliath did his usual trash talking, uh, not only did he insult everyone in Israel, but he also insulted their God. He's a seasoned veteran of war, that is Goliath. He wears the latest high-tech gear available at the time. 
As an alternative to full-scale war, he wants to make a deal to suggest, and this happens often in the ancient Near East, a one-on-one fight between himself and an Israelite soldier, winner take all. The arrangement is to have the two heroes fight instead of thousands uh, battling, and it was very popular in that day. Interestingly, the challenge, Goliath explicitly calls out Saul. Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Seeing he's the tallest man in Israel, perhaps Goliath is mocking the Israelite king for not meeting the challenge himself. Regardless, both Saul and all of Israel were way too afraid to meet Goliath in the battle. And the next thing we get in the text is an introduction to David. So please follow with me in verse 12 as we read through 16. Now David was the son of the Ephratite of uh, Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistine came forward, took his stand morning and evening. Now that's quite a challenge offered here. And although we've already been introduced to David in the text in the last chapter, most scholars view this as due to the author's reliance on different sources. However, the narrative leads us to see that we are told first, uh, David's father, Jesse, was not present at the camp and at the war because he's very old. Second, we are told that David's elder brothers had followed Saul to the war. This is interesting in the light of the events that occupied in the previous chapter. David was anointed king, yet his brothers still followed Saul. The prophet Samuel, though anointing David, their baby brother is king, yet these same brothers follow Saul. And thirdly, this background information explains David's current situation. Despite being called up for Saul for the duty of being in um, the home of Saul in Gibeah, Uh, playing the lyre for him when he goes mad, David also continued, he was bivocational obviously, to shepherd his father's sheep in his own hometown going back and forth between his duties for the king and his father and sort of working two jobs. Evidently, Saul had not called for David's lyre playing in at least 40 days, for that's how long Goliath had challenged Israel for 40 days. 40 in the, in the Bible is a big number. Uh, Jesus was tempted of the devil for 40 days in the wilderness. Israel wandered in the de- desert for 40 years. And so 40 days is sort of a, a, a probationary period, and that's how long Goliath had been carrying on his particular intimidation. Now, in verse 17, I want to read 17 to 24, the story continues. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain 
and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brother's well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going uh, out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, obviously not hiding in the baggage like Saul had done, and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion Philistine of Gath, Goliath, by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. They were terrified. David's father sends him to the front line, as any father would, to check up on his sons, sending along provisions for David's brothers and some cheese for their commanding officer, perhaps to secure good treatment for his sons. And keeping those sons alive would mean regular delivery of cheese. So David secures the interim care for the flock, then goes to the front lines as his father had ordered him. However, upon reaching the front lines, perhaps distracted by the sound of the war cry, David does not deliver the bread to his brothers or the cheese to their commander. Instead, he leaves his things with the keeper of supplies. He runs to the battle line, speaks to his brothers, and as David talks with his siblings, Goliath comes out and made his regular challenge and David heard it. While other Israelites fled in the fear of the Philistine champion, David's reaction sets him apart from other Israelites. Here we're about to see a leader emerge. We're about to see the runt of the litter act more like a man than anyone else in the whole context. So let's look at David's faith begin to express itself in verses 25 through 30. Please stay with me. I know this is lengthy, but I think this is the best way to do it. Verse 25. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. That means remove all taxation. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. 
And David said to him, what have I done now? Was it not but just a word? And he turned away from, his, uh, from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. The Israelites, of course, are talking about the available reward for whoever defeats Goliath. And, of course, David's interested in that. And he turns to the people near him and he inquires about it. And in his inquiry, we see a glimpse of David's theological perspective. This is the point of the narrative. Everybody else is looking at the situation of Goliath, the Philistine army, the conflict, and are terrified because they're only looking at Goliath. David comes in and introduces a theological perspective. He said, this man isn't merely defying Israel. He's defying Israel's God. In other words, this is a God thing, folks. This isn't just a me thing. This isn't just a Saul thing. This isn't just the armies of Israel. But this Goliath is mocking God. And so he began to see that the battle isn't merely soldiers. It's a battle between gods, the Philistine god Dagon and the Israelite god Yahweh. And so David begins to train the truth in on the situation. He begins to look at it with an entirely different perspective. He comes alive, as it were. While Goliath said he defied the armies of Israel, David interpreted it as nothing less than defying the armies of the living God. And this perspective explains why David was so courageous. While defending the human army is one thing, defying God's own army is foolishness. David's strong faith in God comes to the fore here. And he may be the only one in Israel at this moment who has anything to do with faith. And I don't know where Jonathan is. We'll meet him in the next chapter. But I don't know where he is. You know, he and his armor bearer alone went and routed the Philistines all by himself one time. But apparently he was not, at least in the telling of the story. At the same time, Dave, David's human ambition is seen in the multiple inquiries into the reward. David first hears of the reward in verse 25 inquires of the reward in verse 26, is told once again in verse 27. Following Eliab's rebuke of David, he again inquires about the reward in verse 30 and receives the same answer once again. While David clearly has a very strong faith, his interest in the reward, mentioned four, almost five times, is something to think about. His ambition. David's older brother, Eliab, who Samuel initially wanted to anoint, hears David's inquiries into the reward, and he loses it. He accuses his little brother of abandoning what few sheep he was responsible for when he came from Bethlehem to watch the battle. Most people would interpret Eliab's tirade against David as unjust and inaccurate. After all, contrary to Eliab's accusations, David left the shepherd with the sheep. And he was there on his father's orders, not just for selfish reasons. 
And despite Samuel's anointing David as king may show some, some lack of faith in his baby brother, if not jealousy. However, David's brother is also possible that he knows something about David. And after all, David just did abandon the supplies when he ran to the battle lines. So obviously there was a real serious conflict between David and his brothers. More, uh, many of the words that Eliab used to criticize David show up later in 2 Samuel. So perhaps Eliab's critique might be mixed. Like David's character, it's partly true and partly flawed. But the present story, one feels for David when he says, can't I even speak? And he immediately proceeds to inquire about the reward again and again and again. Now let's look at David and Saul as they have a conference, and that is in verses 31 to 39. We're forging ahead with vigor. We're making good time. All right, verse 31. When the words that David had spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. Probably not even shaven yet, I added that. And he has been a man of war from his youth, that is, Goliath. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, he took the lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth and if he arose against me I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him I'm not too sure a bear has a beard but maybe they were different kind of bears your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God you want to talk about bravado this guy's got it he really has it and David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor, put a helmet of bronze on his head, clothed him with a coat of mail, very much like Goliath's armor. It was the state of the art of the day. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So now we have David and Saul. And David is now interacting with Saul and he uh, doesn't give away to Saul what he intends to do with the sling. He never mentions the sling. He never mentions the rocks or the stones to Saul. He doesn't say it. He didn't say, I shot lions and bears with my trusty sling. In fact, his description of his battle and the bear sounds like he means Goliath grabs it by its beard, and bears don't have beards. One thing for sure, David is not planning on fighting Goliath this way, but he has to sell it this way to Saul because those are the rules of the game. The challenge was for a single-armed infantry combat. 
In the end, the David story of fighting the wild animals convinces Saul that David is a capable warrior and gives his permission. In fact, he even declares, Yahweh be with you. And the king was already told when David was first recommended to him, now Saul acknowledges it as well too. He tries on the armor, but that didn't fit what he was intending to do. To understand David's plan to defeat Goliath, we need to understand a few things about ancient combat. And I'll run over this quickly. In ancient warfare, there were basically three divisions of the army. There was the cavalry, the infantry, and the artillery. Cavalry consisted of soldiers on horses or with chariots. Infantry were the men with swords and armor and spears. And the artillery were the slingers and archers, that is the slingers of smooth stones. Uh, while the deadly effectiveness of the archers probably needed no introduction, it's important to realize the same thing about ancient slingers. By the way, the tribe of Benjamin in Judges chapter 20 and verse 16, 700 Benjamite slingers are mentioned, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss it. Now guess who David descended from? The Benjamites. He's a real slinger. <laughs> he's a gunslinger, but he's not slinging gun. He's slinging stones. That's how it worked. In the uh, military, uh, Baruch Halpern suggested that ancient warfare was something like a game of rock, paper, and scissors. Cavalry could take out artillery by their speed, which made them hard to hit, and able to quickly close the distance between them. The artillery or projectile slingers and archers were most effective against infantry, so that's how it worked. But slingers beat infantry. Once this is realized, David's ingenious plan comes to light. While he sold Saul on his abilities by describing his talent in hand-to-hand -hand combat, it was David's skill with the sling that he was planning to use in the battle. And a closer look at how David approaches Goliath hints at the plan. David then took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in his pouch, with his sling in his other hand, and approached the Philistine. Why did David bring a staff with him? More than likely as a distraction, he had no plans to use the staff as a weapon, so Goliath wouldn't notice the sling in his other hand. That's one explanation, makes sense to me. The ruse apparently works as Goliath disparagingly yells at David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? So let's look at the battle in verses 40 through 45. Again, we start in verse 40. Then he took a staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. The Philistine moved forward and came near David with a shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. 
Then David came to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and I will cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead. He fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Wow. Goliath certainly despised David. He was insulted by David. He cursed David. He ran his mouth. You know, sometimes uh, when I was a kid growing up, we used to watch wrestling. And we would ask my dad every time we watched it, is it fake or real? And he would never tell us. He would just say, well, you watch it and you tell me. Eventually, he told us it was fake, but we watched it seriously, and then we wrestled while we were watching wrestling. But this, you know, it's almost like you hear that guy who does all the boxing and all the, what was it, MMA fighting and whatever else, let's get ready to rumble. I mean, you can almost hear that, can't you? And David goes out to meet this guy, but he's so unconventional in the way he fought. I don't know that if there were any Geneva Convention kind of issues with the way people fought, but the way David fights here is extremely clever. Let's put it that way. Very clever. It wasn't wide open, and so he comes after this huge man, and he expresses again, not only to Goliath, but to everyone who could hear he uses religious language in bringing up Yahweh and his power and his character and whatever technology Goliath has, it could never stand because Yahweh will give all the Philistine into Israel's hand. And David even declares the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. It was a teaching moment for everyone there. Goliath moved to attack David, but David ran quickly toward him. Why? Well, Goliath had 125 pounds of armor on. He had a spear that the head of the spear alone weighed 16, 17 pounds. He's 9 foot 9 inches tall. Quickness is not his virtue. I don't imagine he could move very well. He was just too big, too muscle-bound, and he wasn't quick. And David was smaller and nimble and very quick and very savvy, and he knew what he was doing. And so, at this point... He must have appeared to all who were watching as an underdog. But David deftly strikes Goliath in the forehead. That's the only place the armor did not cover. He had a helmet, but he had no covering for the forehead at all. And that's where 
He didn't use five stones. He only used one. And it hit with tremendous force. Some people say that a real slinger can sling a rock anywhere between 125 and 150 miles an hour. I would assume David was pretty good at it. And I'm sure, sure his adrenaline was flowing and he was uh, amply jacked up and he threw this rock and it went inside the forehead of Goliath. Whether or not it killed him, I'm not sure because we'll continue reading here something else happened, but it at least stunned him enough to cause him to fall face down. And uh, David strikes him in the forehead, tremendous force, uh, he doesn't take any chances that the stone has stunned Goliath but not killed him. So David runs to the fallen warrior. Well, let's just read it in the text. It's here. Then David ran, verse 51, stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on their way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered, plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. So David concludes the story here by cutting off. He must have finished him off with stabbing him with the story. I guess cutting his head off would finish him off. So that's what he did. He cut his head off and with his own sword and the Philistines panicked. And because I'm sure of all the theological talk David was uttering in the midst of all this war, they were terrified. The, the Israelites do have a God who is present and active, who does enable someone weak like David to do something so powerful. And so David takes Goliath's weapons for himself. The giant's head, however, he puts in Jerusalem. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? Except it's extremely surprising here because they did not occupy Jerusalem at this time. The Jebusites dwelt and ruled in Jerusalem at this time. And I'm sure David, delivering the head of Goliath to the Jebusites, said, we're on our way. You're next. We're coming for you. Now, what a remarkable story. What a glorious story. But then we have sort of a concluding flashback in the last Three verses. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of this army, Abner, whose son is this youth? Who's his daddy? That's what they used to ask me in the South all the time. It didn't matter. Who's your daddy? What does he do? So I'd make up stuff. I mean, my dad worked for the power company. You know, you wouldn't have any electricity if it wasn't for him. That's what I'd tell him. But I said, my, my dad worked for the power company. And who is he? And I'd tell him who he is. And of course, in the South, people have a way of following that up with how they treat you as according to who your daddy is. But here, Saul's wanting to know who his daddy is because Saul is beginning to feel threatened. He sees his rival, and he does not like what he's seeing. He's suspicious. And so, we'll see in the next chapter they even wrote a song about it. Uh, and the king said, inquire whose son the boy is, and his 
soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with his head, with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And so, there's a little flashback. He wanted to know who David's father was. So he sends the messengers again. He'd already sent messengers to Jesse. I, I don't know whether he couldn't be for sure that that was David or not, but apparently he wasn't sure. And so perhaps the mental illness that Saul suffered was causing memory lapses. We don't know. But after the victory over Goliath, Abner brought David before Saul, still holding the Philistine's head. Here Saul asked directly who his father is. And so that's what's going on. But as we continue to read next week, we will see that this becomes not only a glorious victory, but a festering issue. So what do we take home with us today after spending this time in 50, how many verses? 58 verses? That's a long text, isn't it? Three things I want you to take home. First, faith and the faith of David is the instrument through which God saves. David's faith-filled theological perspective allowed him to have a different vantage point on the grave situation in the Valley of Elah. While other Israelites cowered from the threats of the mighty Goliath, David saw things from a theological perspective or a theocentric perspective. That's why you need sound theology. Sound theology will help you in your life more than I can tell you. It will give you a viewpoint. It won't solve all your problems. It won't take all your problems away. But it will help you learn how to see and respond to your problems because you know who God is. You know who your God is. You know who your covenant-keeping Father is. And therefore, we make no apologies here at Spring Meadows for teaching and thinking about and talking about theology, the doctrine of God, his character, who he is, what he's like, how he responds. And so David brought to bear upon this huge problem a vision highly informed by theology. Because he says Goliath is defying not just the armies of Israel, but the armies of the living God. And when Saul and his Israelites were terrified by Goliath's size and appearance, David instead saw his vulnerability. God plus nothing is bigger than anybody, everybody. That's, that's how we have to see things. And we just get caught up in panic and fear so often because we lose sight of God. I'm not telling you that you can go and slay your Goliaths tomorrow by simply having good theology. But what I am telling you is it helps you face difficulty and heartache and heartbreak and suffering with the right kind of perspective. You know that God's not out against uh, out to get you he's not punishing you for your sins I hear that so much in counsel with people sometimes is that they make the mistake of saying well God is he's he's after me he wants to get me he wants to punish me for my sins no 
If you're a believer, he's already punished your sins in Jesus. He may want to discipline you as a father does his son, but he's not punishing you as a judge. He's loving on you as a father to get your head straight and to get you back in the race. But David had an amazing perspective of faith that shaped all of his actions. David's reliance on God for victory is a reminder to us of our own powerlessness apart from Christ. The victory over Goliath is the victory brought by God himself. As David puts it, the battle is the Lord. We are reminded of that passage in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, which famously states, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. This is a powerful call for us as believers to remember that victory is not of ourselves, but due to the one in whom we put our faith. Just as Israel was trying to succeed by being like other nations and demanding a king like other nations to lead them, so often we rely on human effort alone for success. Jesus tells us over and over, In John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. So draw encouragement and good hope today, knowing that even a small faith can move a mountain into the depths of the sea. It's not how much faith. It's who your faith is in. And when we face every battle we face, we have to remember that ultimately that battle is the Lord's battle, which was decisively and forever won at the cross of Calvary on the hill of the skull. Second thing that I want to leave you with, God uses complex characters. (laughs) Nobody in the Bible gets out without a little dirt being thrown on them. And David's character, I mean, he was, he was pretty preoccupied, wasn't he, with the reward? I mean, he's all up into the reward. Now, I'm too spiritual to be like that, aren't you? I mean, I would never think of ever that. I, I'm too, you know, and that, to be a liar about it is worse than doing it. You know, it's just, it just is. In the first glimpses of David, we see a very complex character. He partially obeys his father. He brings the provisions, but he doesn't follow through, doesn't deliver the goods, leaves them with the keeper of supplies, and he'll never see him again. David shows self-interest and his preoccupation with the reward. When convincing Saul he can defeat the giant, he really misrepresents his intentions. Instead of describing hand-to-hand combat, he breaks the rules of combat and sneaking a sling onto the battlefield uh, against Goliath, distracting him with his staff. Uh, Baruch Halpern characterizes David's battle tactic here as a blow below the belt, a sucker punch. A man with a howitzer mowing down a peasant with a pitchfork. David's storing of the head of the giant in Jerusalem shows his ambition to make Jerusalem his capital and king. While none of these could probably be described as outright sin, it shows that David is not a pristine character whose motivations were purely pietistic. He's not. David is flesh and blood, fallen, sinner like the rest of us. But God uses broken, fallen sinners because that's all he's got to work with. 
There are <laughs> no absolutely flawless good men or women in this world. Something happened in Genesis 3 that forever abused that notion. It's called the fall into sin. David is complex character, yet God uses complex characters. I don't want to mar the good name of David, so to speak, but he needed a Savior too. He needed somebody to go and deliver him and save him as well. He's a type of Christ in his role as Israel's anointed one, but the Old Testament still looks forward to God's perfect anointed one and that God works through flawed people because we're all flawed. Finally, and this is the end of the message, David is a type of Christ. David's flaws are evident. His words and deeds also set him apart from Saul. David proves himself to be a worthy successor. Though called to deliver Israel from the Philistines, Saul refuses to meet Goliath's challenge. In contrast, David does not hesitate to defend Israel, and he runs to the battle. In fulfillment of Saul's words, David proves he's better than Saul and worthy to rule Israel. David relies on God to save Israel in an unexpected way. In this, David also functions as the type of the future anointed one, Jesus, who will save Israel in an unexpected way. He saves Israel us by weakness when he goes to the cross defeating death and sin and the devil and the world he does so in weakness he gives up his spirit he dies but God's weakness is more powerful than the most powerful that men can do through weakness God accomplishes great things what about you can God use you even in your brokenness even in your wickedness even not wickedness weakness even in your struggle God can use you to accomplish great things Christ saved us in weakness and is now exalted to the position of authority and power his humiliation is contrasted with his exaltation to the right hand of God. Hallelujah, what a Savior we have. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this narrative that's in the Scripture. We thank you for speaking to us today clearly from it. We pray that you would drive home to our hearts that we walk by faith, not by sight. That God uses us even though our motives are askew and awry. And even though in the best of us there's a lot that is less than glorious, you still use us to accomplish your purposes in this world and help us see that weakness doesn't disqualify us. More often than not, it qualifies us. Now, Lord, as we give today, may we give from a heart that is overwhelmed by gratitude at your goodness, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.